six kids, any other kids are here, you can head out to your classes. Everybody else, uh, welcome and good morning, and uh, we're, we are glad that you're here. And uh, we started a new sermon series last week called Be Rich, and we're in Ephesians chapter 1, if you got a Bible and you want to turn there, it'll be on your screen, or feel free to uh, use your phone or other device. Uh, we'd encourage you to download our app on, on your phone as well. So we started this new series in Ephesians. We'll be there for a while. Uh, we started off at a blistering pace last week. We covered the first half of the first verse, and uh, we're going to continue that pace this week and cover the second half of verse 1. And then next week, we're really going to move, though. We're going to cover all of verse 3, hopefully. So, uh, so I want to talk to you today about the idea of I'm not who I was. I'm not who I was. You ever feel the need to be different? I'm not who I was. Um, let me start with an example from uh, baseball. I know some of you don't like baseball, but uh, it'll be shorter than a baseball game, so hopefully you can endure. Spring training's only a few weeks away, for those of you who are baseball fans. Um, but uh, So, any, any Cubs fans here? Okay. Uh, I think there were even more than that in the first service. But uh, so if, uh, if you're a Cubs fan, you're probably a very patient person. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, because the, the Cubs have kind of, well, basically, it's kind of like they were under a curse. I mean, it's what, you know, people said. And uh, uh, there's actually the curse of the billy goat in 1945. But, you know, the, the Cubs went like 108 years between winning World Series. And, uh, and for those of you who aren't baseball fans, Jacob, that's like the championship uh, of, of, of baseball. So just to, just to be clear. Uh, but uh, so, I mean, they won in 1908. 2016, they're, they're back in the World Series. Had not won one in between. It only made it to one or two. And, you know, there were things that happened over the years. They get close. And it seems like, you know, it seemed like the curse went into effect. And they just didn't quite... Uh, make it. You know, there was the Steve Bartman foul, foul ball incident and all, all these kind of things. But anyway, 2016, they were the best regular season team in baseball. They were in the World Series against Cleveland Indians. They got down, but they came back, tied the series. So it goes to a deciding game seven. And in the seventh inning, they're up by three runs. And uh, they bring in Araldus Chapman out of the bullpen, who's the best reliever in baseball, should be over and done with. But in the eighth inning, he gives up three runs. The game's tied. You know, the fans are sitting there, and they're kind of, you know, the air kind of goes out of the stadium. They're like, oh, no, here we go again. It's going to happen again. The curse is in effect, those kind of things. And so it's a scoreless ninth inning, so it's going to go into extra innings. And as if there needed to be any more drama, it started raining, and so there was a rain delay. And um, <clears throat> backstory, some of you saw that, backstory of the rain delay uh, Tom Verducci, uh, a writer for Sports Illustrated, wrote an article how that uh, during the rain delay, which if I remember correctly lasted 17 minutes, uh, one of the Cubs players, their right fielder, Jason Hayward, who had signed a huge free agent contract um, but had really not delivered uh, production-wise, but he, uh, he gathered together uh, the Cubs players, got them in a, in a, in a weight room off to kind of the, the side of their locker room, and basically gave them a pep talk. 
and basically proceeded to remind them of who they were, of the fact that they were the best regular season team in baseball and what they had done to get there and how they made it through uh, the playoffs because I don't know if they were thinking about some curse, but, I mean, the players were kind of down. I mean, if you're that close and you think in three-run lead, best relief pitcher in baseball, you know, we ought to have this one, and now it could go either way, and now there's this rain delay, and, you know, some, there's nerves, there's uh, tension, that kind of thing. I mean, the Indians relief pitcher that started the 10th inning described himself as not being able to feel his legs. Um, and, and so, I mean, there's all these nerves, these kind of things, but it, it's kind of like a rallying cry. And, and, and they accepted, believed uh, what uh, Jason Hayward had said. And, and they kind of, you know, were renewed, reinvigorated and went out. And in the 10th inning, uh, they won uh, the, the game. And so this is the, the, the point of the illustration, really the point of the message today, is that Jesus calls us to know, to remember, to think about, to live based on who we are and not some curse that we used to be under in the past when we were outside of Christ. And see, once we know who we are, it changes then the way that we live. Because what we believe and how we think determines how we feel, and it determines what we do. And so if, if we see ourselves wrong, we're going to live wrong. There's a great power in identity. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verses 9 and 10, Paul lists uh, just this long list of sins. And, and then he says to the church there at Corinth, to these Christians, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so God wants us to see this is who you were, but this is who you are now in Christ. And he wants us to live a new life, a different life out of who we are in Jesus instead of just being stuck in who we used to be. And so, like I said, there's, there's a great power in identity. And, and let me just couple terms. By identity, what I mean is who we really are. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big term really in our society now because, you know, some people would say uh, you have a biological sex and then you choose your, your gender identity. And that's not really what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about on the spiritual side, who are we in Christ? And our identity is who we are. It's who God has made us to be. Our self-image is who we see ourselves to be. And I think Josh McDowell's right when he says that a healthy self-image is seeing ourselves as God sees us, nothing more and nothing less. And so the closer we are to seeing ourselves in how God sees us, the healthier we're going to be. The farther away that we are, the unhealthier that we're going to be. And so... Who are you, and how do you see yourself? And, and so here's why this is important. An, an unhealthy identity or self-image can lead to a lot of things. It can lead to self-sabotage. Sometimes we live down to who we think we're not. I mean, if we see ourselves as a failure, it's probably going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy a lot of times. 
If we see ourselves as a sinner, we see ourselves as under some kind of generational curse or something like that, stuck in the past, my family's always been this way, we're probably going to find a way to continue being that way, even if we say we don't want to be that way, because how we think determines how we live. So sometimes wrong self-image can be self-sabotage. You know, sometimes it can lead to pride. We can think too highly of ourselves. We're not our best day. But on the other hand, we're not our worst day either. Because really who we are in Christ is not based on our outward actions. It's based on who he is in us. That's, that's the good news of this. It's based on grace. But like I said, an unhealthy self-image, seeing ourselves the wrong way. You know, we, we can be private. We can be all puffed up, uh, you know, acting like we're something uh, more than we are. But on the other hand, it can lead to insecurity. You know, sometimes those two things go together, especially men. Sometimes people who come across as prideful aren't really arrogant. They're really insecure is what they are, trying to mask it by covering with external things. Have you ever noticed that the more secure you are, like the, the less affirmation you need in something? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like um, if, if you tell me, we walked out of here today and said, well, good sermon, Jimmy. I mean, I'm like, that's nice, but I'm not going to get the big head about that because just kind of what I do. And plus, I'm probably, uh, you know, have nitpicked 27 ways that it really wasn't all that good and it could have been improved and that kind of thing. So, you know, what you say to me about it is probably not really going to affect how I look at it that much. I'm going to evaluate it for myself. Does that make sense? So it's not really going to affect me that much. One way. It's not going to make me prideful or something like that. On the other hand, things that I feel insecure about, like, for example, it's, pre- it's a pretty well-known fact that um, I- I'm not Mr. Home Repair. <laughs> okay? Um, uh, I'm not mechanical. I mean, you don't really want me fixing a, a whole lot of-, of things. But, like, when that does happen, like, uh, Friday before last, Robin tells me one of her blinker signals is out. And uh, we're needing to, to go to Knoxville that evening because uh, Lily has a basketball game there. So I, I go to O'Reilly's and buy one and ask them if I can, uh, you know, use a couple of screwdrivers so, you know, I can change it. And so I got out there in the parking lot and I changed it. Now, this is a little blinker signal, but I'm like, yeah, I'm the man. I changed that, you know. <laughs> but, you know... There's not a whole lot more than that I can do when it comes to, you know, I can change a flat tire. That's about the height of my, uh, you know, car repair abilities. Or uh, one day this week, I, I walk, I'm out in the hallway of the, the office one morning, and Andy says to Jessica that the toilet in this bathroom is, is, is running. And, you know, talking about calling Jim, that kind of thing. And so I decided to go look at it. And, and so I, you know, take the lid off the tank. And, you know, the, the, I don't even know what you call it. This is how mechanical I am. But, like, you know, where the chain is and uh, the flapper valve. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it, it was stuck. And so I just, you know... Got it unstuck, and it started where I'm like, yeah, put me on the building repair and maintenance team, you know? Um, 
but that's like, that's like the one thing I could do. If there's anything beyond that, you know, we're calling Jim at, at that point. So that's why if we're insecure about things, we, we tend to want, you know, more affirmation. <laughs> we get prideful when we actually do something. If we're secure, then it's like, okay, whatever. It's just, uh, but you're saying our security comes from our identity. And if we, if we see ourselves in the right way, it makes us secure. So we don't have to go around posturing and, you know, comparing ourselves to other people or trying to get ahead of other people or trying to make ourselves uh, look better. Or, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the people-pleasing things that we do, the dumb people-pleasing things that we do, it's because of insecurity. You know, we give in to peer pressure and adults, adults don't act like it's just the teenagers that do that. Um, you know, sometimes we do those things because we're insecure. Sometimes it can lead to an ungodly lifestyle. But have, seeing ourselves the right way, knowing our identity can really lead to humility. It can lead to worship because we're looking to Jesus and, and, and not ourselves. And so the big idea that I want us to see today then is if we're in Christ, I'm not who I was, so I don't have to live like I did. I'm not who I was, so I'm not going to live like I did. I'm going to live differently out of this new identity in Christ. So what is this new identity in Christ? Well, let's read the first couple of verses of Ephesians 1. We're going to focus on uh, the second half of verse 1. So Paul, the one who's writing this letter uh, to this church in Ephesus, says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, Ryan, let's go back to, to verse 1. The, the end of verse 1 again. Paul's writing this. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of Bible scholars believe this was a circular letter that was sent to the church in Ephesus, but also designed to be used in the, in the other churches that were there in that area. But since we're going to be in Ephesians for a while, let me give you a little background on Ephesus, and I want to relate it to something uh, that we're talking about today. I mean, Ephesus was a major city, and really Paul's missionary strategy was he went to the cities and then the gospel spread out from there. We do things backwards a lot of times today in that, you know, you go to the rural areas and then try to go into, in, into the cities. And obviously the rural areas need uh, the gospel. I mean, I feel like God has called uh, us to Jefferson City and, and, and Morristown. But, I mean, the cities need the gospel. I don't think we realize this a lot of times, but the word pagan actually literally means out of the farm, uh, so the gospel first took root within the city. But we as the church are called, in a sense, to be a city within the city, a shining light on the hill, a countercultural kingdom community making an impact because we're living differently out of this new identity amongst the people and in the world around us. And, and so, uh, you know, this church was located in a real, actual, geographical Place and I'm gonna make a point out of this before we're we're done. But Ephesus uh, was the capital of this area of uh, Asia. Um, it was kind of a political and commercial center within the Roman Empire. 
It was a large and prosperous region, probably close to a quarter million people, maybe not all within the city walls, but probably close to a quarter million people in population, one of the bigger cities in the ancient world then. Uh, it was a port city. So for the Roman Empire, it was kind of the chief communication and commercial link between Rome and, and the east. Merchants flocked to it. It's kind of a melting pot of nations, ethnic groups. Uh, there was a pretty sizable Jewish population there who had freedom, although they did experience uh, some, some persecution. Uh, but a couple of things that stood out about Ephesus is it had uh, the world's largest, um, or at least in the Greek world, open-air theater, 20, seated 25,000 people. So, uh, I mean, if you, if you think about an amphitheater, it's outdoors. But size-wise, that'd be roughly, maybe slightly bigger now since they made the modifications than Thompson Bowling Arena. Uh, that, that's, the, that's the number of people uh, that we're talking about. And so... Um, there's a stadium for chariot races and fights with animals. But probably the biggest thing it was known for, one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world, was the Temple of Diana. Uh, it measured 425 by 220 square feet. Uh, I didn't do the math on that, but that's some major square footage. Uh, it had columns that were 60 feet uh, high. It housed a statue of Diana, also called Artemis. Uh, it was a depository. It was kind of functioned like a bank. Uh, it, it was served by hundreds of the priestesses of Diana who were basically, in effect, temple prostitutes. That was a part of their uh, religion. And, and so, once you understand, you know, this church ha- ha- has been started. It's been planted. It's taking root. It's flourishing. You can read about it in Acts 19 and 20. Not in Jerusalem where, you know, there are a bunch of good Jewish boys and girls that have been raised the right way, but in a, in a Gentile area with this kind of false religion, with, uh, you know, all these ungodly characteristics. And so these people were physically and, you know, geographically and, and, and relationally, this is where the church was located. So this is not something that's kind of this airy-fairy, divorced from real life uh, kind of letter that Paul is writing. But he's writing this to people who, you know, were in the middle of real life and they were surrounded by people that, uh, you know, had a different religion and a different way of life and all these kind of things. So this sound kind of like our world today. And so there's a sense in which when we talk about you know, having a new identity and you know, living differently out of that, that you know, there's a sense in coming out of what we were in and, and you know, being different, being Christ-like. And so as we think about this, not who I was, so I'm not going to live the way that I did. What is our new identity? Well, there's lots of things that you could talk about biblically, but there's three particular aspects of this new identity that we see in this verse, and and that's what we're going to focus on. So number one, our new identity is that we're set apart unto God, which is the meaning of what it says here, that we're saints. I mean, look at this. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And he could write today, to the saints who are in Jefferson City, to the saints who are in True Life Church. Now, this is hard for us to get. Because we have a tendency, to, when we think about the word saint, we think about like Mother Teresa or somebody like that. We think, you know, Roman Catholic. In Roman Catholicism, people are made saints 
because of what they've done. That's not the biblical usage or meaning of the word. Biblically, uh, being a saint is based on not what we've done, but it's based on what Jesus has done for us. In fact, the New Testament uses the word saint to describe Christians. Paul never called anybody a Christian. But, but he used the word saint to, to describe believers dozens of times, and it's used multiple times in the New Testament to refer to every Christian. So, believe it or not, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. Now, like I said, we don't tend to think of ourselves that way, right? We, we tend to think... Somebody's a saint, they're a super holy, special you know, person who's really served God, maybe been a martyr and done miracles and stuff like this. And when, when God says, if you're in Christ, you're a saint, you're set apart unto me, you belong to me, I've made you new, I've made you different, I've made you my own. That's what makes you uh, a, a saint. So, you know, St. Charlie, St. Sharon, St. Mara, uh, St. Leanne. Even St. Shane, you know, but, I mean, believe it or not. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, say this with you. Say, I, I'm a saint. I, I'm a saint. Anybody believe that? I'm a saint. I mean, that's, that's what, I mean, turn to the person next to you, especially with your spouse, and say, you're a saint. Even though we had that argument on the way to church this morning, you're, you're still a saint, believe it or not. Because it's not based on what you've done, it's based on who you are in Christ. Um, now, I want to read something to you because I think it's important that we understand this because, like I say, I don't think we usually uh, think um, about what this means in the right way, and I'm working uh, to something practical. But a Greek scholar by the name of Kenneth Wiest has written this. He says, Paul addresses his letter to the saints. Uh, the, the Greek word is hagios. It, it is one of the great doctrinal words in this epistle. The word demands a careful and full treatment. Paul took it right out of the terminology of the pagan Greek religions. He had to. There were no other terms he could use so long as it was uh, confined as he was confined to the Greek language. So there, in, in, in just in normal Greek usage in these pagan Greek religions, this word hagios meant devoted to the gods. Devoted to the gods. Um, for instance, a Greek worshiper would bring an offering to the god as a gift. So he had devoted that, he had set that apart to that god. Or the Greeks would build a magnificent temple and devote it to a certain god. The building was thereby set apart from any secular use and separated to a religious one. It was consecrated to the worship of that particular Greek god. The building was therefore holy. Holy, and this is the, what we need to understand here, not in the sense of the term pure, for the Greek temples were filled with immoral practices that were a part of their religious worship, but holy in the sense of being non-secular and therefore religious in nature, set apart for the worship of the Greek divinities. divinities. The term was also used of persons who were devoted to the service of a god, separated to the service of the god, thus hagios, consecrated, non-secular in character, but on the other hand, distinctively religious in nature and occupation. This is the genius of, our, of the Greek word translated saint. 
Um, the verbal forms mean to hallow, to make sacred, especially by, uh, by burning a, a, a sacrifice. And so ultimately, what he's saying is this word means to be set apart unto God. He's taking this idea uh, of the Greeks setting apart uh, themselves or a gift or a temple or whatever unto God. And he's saying uh, in, in the right usage, in, in God's uh, uh, usage of the word. It's not us setting ourselves apart to God. It's the fact that in Christ, God has set us apart unto him. We're new. We're different. We now belong to him. And so what does that then mean to our lives? Well, if we're holy, if we're set apart, 1 Peter 1.15 says, uh, but as he who's called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because as it is written, uh, be holy for I am holy. In other words, if we're set apart unto God, if we belong like him, but if we belong to him, he now says, well, live like you belong to him. Uh, live like you're set apart unto God. So what that means is if we're in Christ, that means how we live our lives has to change. How we think has to change. What we watch and listen to has to change. The way we talk has to change. Our integrity has to change. The way we approach sexuality has to change. The way we handle money has to change. Uh, the way we approach our marriage and parenting and every other practical area of life has to change because we're in Christ now. We're set apart unto him. We belong to him. And, and so I think at some point the question then becomes, are we living like we're in Ephesus, like everybody else, or are we living like we're in Christ? And the reality is we can't have it both ways. And he says, get off the fence. If you name the name of Jesus, if you say that you belong to him, that you're trusting him, live like it. Live like you're set apart unto him. So I'm not who I was, so I'm not going to live the way that I lived. That's the idea. So we're called to live a holy, set-apart life because that's our identity. That is who we are. He wants us to see ourselves as saints, set-apart unto God. Not something that we've earned, but something that's been given to us by grace. This is our position. This is our identity. We're new. We're different because of Jesus. And he wants us to live out of that, not trying to you know, get something, but live out of who we already are. Okay, number two. Our new identity is that we're believing in Jesus. I mean, notice the next phrase. He says, uh, he says, faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, you may say, well, you know, this is obvious. I mean, I, you know, you got to believe to be a Christian and those kind of things. But I, but I want to take it a little bit deeper. So the, the word faithful there in, in, in verse 2, when we think of somebody being faithful, we think of it as something you know, that we do, like you're a faithful friend or you're faithful to your spouse, you're honest, you're, you're trustworthy, you're reliable. But, but honestly, this is kind of a misleading translation of the word. If, you're, if your translation uh, says faithful in Christ Jesus, which uh, I'm preaching out of the New King James, that's what it says. I mean, it, it literally means believing. It, it, it's, it's placing Jesus as the object of our faith, him being trustworthy, him being faithful, not our trustworthiness and faithfulness as the object of faith. 
Uh, and notice it's, it's present tense. It's an ongoing action. If you're saved, if you're in Christ, it's because you are trusting in Jesus Christ. It's, it's not because you trusted him in the past. It's not because uh, you prayed a prayer in the past. not because you walked an aisle. Not because you were in an event or had an experience or, or, or joined a, a church. Uh, you're not saved by prayer. You're not saved by an experience, an event, a preacher, a church membership, walking an aisle. You're saved because you're trusting in the perfect person and the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and that may sound a little nitpicky, but um, I think it's an eternally crucial distinction. Because there are lots of people in East Tennessee, and there may be some sitting in this room right now, that think they're right with God and think they're going to heaven because they're trusting in a prayer they prayed or an aisle they walked or a preacher they talked to or an experience they had. But they're not actually truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone for their salvation. And so they're missing God. I have a relationship with God. They're not going to heaven. And they'd be like, man, why? It doesn't seem like Christian life works for me. It's because you're not, you don't have life in Christ. And we need to make sure that that's nailed down in our lives. Um, to quote Kenneth Wiest again, he, he talks about, uh, you know, in Acts 16, um, God did a miracle where Paul was able to get out of jail, but he, he chose to stay. And the Philippian jailer, seeing this, he, he cried out to Paul and said, you know, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And uh, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And he tells him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what this means. We says, he exhorts him to consider the Lord Jesus worthy of trust as to his character and, and, and motives. So when he said believe there, it's the same Greek word is used here for faithful in, in Ephesians 1. That's the point. He exhorts him to place his confidence in his ability to do just what he says he will do. He exhorts him to entrust the salvation of his soul into the hands of the Lord Jesus. That means a definite taking of oneself out of one's own keeping and entrusting oneself into the keeping of the Lord Jesus. It means, in a sense, to rest all of our weight on him, to put all of our eggs in that basket. It means we're relying on Jesus and him alone for our salvation. And so then, if we're doing that, what does that mean then in our day-to-day -day lives? It means, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. I could say the exact same thing I said about the first point. I won't because I don't want to be redundant. But just summarize it to say this. If we're trusting Jesus, our day-to-day -day life is not going to look the same. Just like if we really believe we're set apart unto God, our day-to-day -day life is not going to look the same. Uh, Dallas Willard, uh, in an article he wrote about discipleship, uh, used a, a term that it's, it's new to me, but I love it. He talked about vampire Christianity. He said, what in the world is vampire Christianity? Uh, well, let me read you a little bit of his article. Um, he says, first, there's nothing, absolutely nothing in what Jesus himself or his early followers taught that suggests you can decide just to enjoy forgiveness at Jesus' expense and have nothing more to do with him. 
Some years ago, A.W. Tozer expressed his, quote, feeling that a notable heresy has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as as long as we want to. Um, He then goes on to state, quote, that salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. And he doesn't mean being saved by obedience. He means uh, salvation produces obedience. And he says the idea that it doesn't is just foreign to scripture. And uh, Willard picks up and says, This heresy has created the impression that it is quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. One, in effect, says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please. But I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? In other words, what he's saying is, you know, I want your blood to cover my sins, but I don't want your lordship to mess with my life. But he says, he asks this question. He says, can we really imagine that this is the approach that Jesus finds acceptable? And when you stop to think of it, How can one actually trust him for forgiveness of sins while not trusting him for much more than that? You can't trust him without believing that he was right about everything and that he alone has the key to every aspect of our lives here on earth. But if you believe that, you will naturally want to stay just as close to him as you can in every aspect of your life. We're set apart unto God. That's who we are. We're believing in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. But that has to change the way that we live. Third aspect of our, of our new identity that I want to point out is that we are now in union with Jesus Christ. We're in Christ Jesus. That, that's what he says here. We're believing in Christ Jesus. Or if you go into verse 3, it says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the, heaven, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's now who we are. Our identity spiritually is that we are in Christ. When we get saved in some kind of spiritual, mystical, mysterious kind of way, there's like a new conglomeration. There's a new corporation, so to speak, that's been formed. Christ is now in me, and I'm now in him. And some of the analogies the New Testament uses is like of a a branch being connected to the vine, of a husband and wife becoming one in marriage, of Jesus being the head of the body and us being members of the body. In in some way, we belong to him. He's in us. We're connected together. And, And so, so that means that it's what it says. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Everything that belongs to him now belongs to us, not because of us, despite us, but by his grace, because we're in him. That's why we're calling this series Be Rich, because we are rich in Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is our identity. God doesn't see me as me anymore. He now sees me in Christ. And if we begin to see ourselves that way, it's one of the most life-transforming things that we can ever experience. Listen, you're not a loser. You're in Christ. You're not a failure. You're in Christ. You're not a sinner. You're in Christ. You're not an addict. You're in Christ. You're not your past. You're in Christ. So, 
Who are we? What do we have in Christ? Well, let me share with you some things. This comes from an article by John Piper. And uh, Ryan, if you just put the verses up as I say them, we're going to take the time to you know, read every word of every verse. But he, he talks about 13, uh, he calls them stupendous realities of who we are in, uh, in Christ. Number one, in Christ, you were given grace before the world was created. 2 Timothy 1.9 says he gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Number two, in Christ Jesus, you were chosen by God before creation. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. Number three, according to Romans chapter eight, we are loved with an, a love that we can't be separated from. In Christ, God loves us completely, permanently, unconditionally. He says nothing can separate us from his love. In Christ, we're redeemed and forgiven from all of our sins. All of our sins are taken away. And number five, we're justified. Shane talked about this earlier. In Christ, we're declared uh, righteous in Christ. And God, uh, had, it says, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Six, we're a new creation. We're a child of God. The Bible says in Christ, the old has passed away. All things have become new. This is who we are. In Christ, we've been seated in heavenly places. Number eight, in Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are yes for us. Uh, I mean, that's what scripture says. All the promises of God in him are yes and amen. That means if you're in Christ, every promise that God made to Jesus, every blessing that he gave to Jesus, we can now claim. We don't have to earn it. They're ours because of grace. We don't have to go get it to grow as a Christian. We have to believe that we already have it and claim it and trust him. And as we walk in faith and obedience and we're sanctified and we're growing in him, we're going to experience them more and more in the day-to-day realities of our lives because they're already in us because we're in Christ. They belong to us. Listen, God did not save us just to, you know, so we could go to heaven and everything be awesome uh, there and for us to live in in, in fear and doubt and worry and defeat and, and struggle between now and then. He wants us to live victorious, overcoming lives because of who we are in Christ. And I'm not talking about our circumstances outwardly. Those are going to be good. Sometimes they're going to be bad sometimes. But inwardly, we can overcome because of who we are in Christ. We can live differently. He says, in Christ, uh, you're you're being sanctified and made holy. In Christ, uh, you have everything that you really need, Philippians 4.19. In Christ, we have the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds. In Christ, we have the gift of eternal life. In Christ, someday, just as he was raised from the dead, we are going to be raised from the dead. And so, I'm not who I was. I'm in Christ. So now I can live a different way. Well, how does he want me to live? John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. How does he want us to live? He wants us to live abiding in him, staying close to him, staying connected to him. That's how we experience these 
wonderful blessings in our day in, day out lives. So we're set apart unto God. We're believing in Jesus Christ. Um, we're, we're in Christ and we have, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is our new identity. If, if you're truly in Christ, this is who we are. Well, how does that then affect our lives in, in, in a practical way? Well, uh, I want to show you a little video clip that I think is a great illustration of this. It's uh, Trevor Lawrence, uh, and I'll say up front, sorry, actually not sorry to Alabama fans, but uh, it, it, it's Trevor Lawrence, uh, the uh, qu- quarterback for Clemson, uh, just won the national championship, just a freshman, you know, a year ago he's in high school. Uh, and uh, listen to what he has to say about this. Uh, um... I've just, that's just kind of always been my personality. Um, and then just growing up, my family's always like, I mean, football's, football's important to me, obviously, but it's just, it's not my life. It's not, uh, it's not like the biggest thing in my life, I would say, uh, my, my faith is. So that just comes from kind of knowing, um, knowing who I am outside of that. So I just know, no matter how big the situation is, it's not really gonna define me. Just, just Put my identity and you know what what Christ says, what, who th- He thinks I am, and who I know that He says I am. So, really, like I said, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what people think about me or how good they think I play or whatever. You know, it doesn't really matter. So, that's definitely be, been a big thing for me, just uh, in my situation, just knowing that and having confidence in that. And I'd say those words are real. I mean, if you look at how he played, I mean, he doesn't seem overwhelmed by a moment. And that's what I'm saying. When we know who we are, it gives us a security that we can really face the challenges of life in, that we can live out of. And, you know, it, it, this is something that's internal. It's constant. It's, it's not just based on external kind of things. So, who are you? Are you in Christ? And are you living like you're in Christ? Or if people looked at you, would they say, so to speak, that you look more like you're in Ephesus? Sometimes we need to get off the fence. And if we say that we belong to Jesus, we need to live like we belong to Jesus. Some of you are beating yourself up. Some of you are stuck in your past. Some of you think you're still under a curse like a Cubs fan when Jesus became a curse to remove all of that curse and you're new in him, you're alive in him, you're free in him, you're blessed in him and God wants you to claim that and God wants you to live out of that. And some of you need to take the step today of repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ of putting all of your weight on him, relying on him, turning to him, giving yourself to him by faith. So repenting of your sins, coming to him as he draws you by his spirit so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have new life. So are you in Christ? Do you know that you have a relationship with him? I mean, have you... Is he the Lord of your life? Or have, have you tried to be a vampire Christian and say, I just want his blood uh, to wash me? Have you really come to that place of repentance and surrender and saying, Jesus, take me. I give myself to you. I belong to you. Have you been trusting in a prayer or a preacher or something else? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? If not, this is your moment for you to give yourself to him. Let's bow our heads and, and close our eyes. And, and I want to lead us in prayer. And give-